Hello, everyone, and welcome to Layer, layer by five. Layer. <laughs> <laughs> there was such a pause, I thought you were waiting for me. <laughs> oh, this is the a podcast with me, uh, Andrew Nathanson, and... Kit Clement, that's me. Yeah, I was actually waiting for you there. Um, <laughs> and we're recording this later. We've actually already recorded two episodes, but this is going to go at the start of the first episode uh, because we didn't know what the name of the podcast was until now, so yay. And we didn't know uh, the format for how we do these intros until, well, actually, I don't even think I don't, we still know. We still don't. Yeah, yeah. we still don't. Uh, but anyway, we just wanted to record a short thing here to let you know that uh, this is called Layer by Layer. We have a subreddit if you want to talk to us. That's uh, right. Reddit slash r slash layer by layer. Yeah, that's it. Is that how you say Reddit? Yeah, it's reddit.com slash r slash layer by layer. Or it's just the layer by layer subreddit. You should be able to find that's, it. Yeah. That's the easier way to say it. Yeah. Um. But yeah, that's what this is. And if you want to contact us, get, go there. Uh, other than that, I think just listen to the episode. All right. Enjoy, everyone. So we're just going to be talking over each other the whole way. Yeah, well, <laughs> no, more like, just like, if you know you have something that you want to say. Just keep saying. Just like, keep going, and then one of us will eventually stop. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I think we should just have a conversation where we're just both talking simultaneously. Yeah, it's, and, see... and, and it's just like, you can, oh, put one in each ear, and then you can just listen with one earbud in. Yep. And <laughs> Wait. <laughs> <laughs> so you can choose whose monologue you want to listen to. <laughs> Why are we not doing that podcast? The du- the dual <laughs> monologue podcast? That the sounds du- <laughs> the dual monologue. Like we're fighting each other. <laughs> it's kind of like that one song from Hamilton. The um oh the yeah, farmer review, where they like Hamilton just like don't give a f- about what that guy's got to say, and they're just talking <laughs> over each other. Then all of a sudden they say the same words and stuff. Right. <laughs> like just make a podcast on that concept. It's like an hour long. <laughs> but then it's like you actually get two hours of content if you want to listen to both. Right, yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's goofy. Hey, everyone. Hey, everyone. And hello, Kit. Hey, how's it going, Andrew? Hey, I'm pretty good. I'm going to pretend like I just started this call with you and like we haven't already been talking for a while. So, hey, uh, how's, how's it going? It is going peachy for, you know, having one week left of school, I suppose. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah I finished... Uh, <laughs> I finished my school, although I we're in different roles in our schools, huh? A little um, bit. Yeah, I finished my school a couple weeks ago. Nice. So enjoying the break right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> although I gotta say, towards the end of that that semester, it, it, well, there wasn't too much going on really. I kind of finished my final projects, then I had like no finals. Oh. Um, yeah, because every class had just final projects, so That's it was nice. like I've I had to take like two tests or something. Okay. Wasn't bad. Pretty yeah. Chill. <laughs> Yeah, for me, um, I'm teaching four classes right now, which is um, mm-hmm. a load. I'm also, <laughs> I'm also doing like a couple independent studies with some students too. So this term has just been a little insane, and uh, wow. uh, it's just been this like roll of every single week 
since from like week four to week eight, I gave a midterm in some class. Mm. <laughs> and, it, it, you know, with midterms or any sort of exams, it's always like release review questions, get review solutions, write exam, right. grade exam. It's like there's, there's a whole life cycle of an exam as an instructor. <laughs> and I was in several different phases of that life cycle for basically six weeks straight. Wow. And uh, it's not fun. <laughs> um, it, <laughs> trust me grading is like the easy part for for really? most of the time yeah grading is like the yeah what, what what classes are you teaching exactly uh mostly statistics classes so i teach okay. um this term i'm teaching two sections of our 243 course which is um an introduction to probability and a little bit of statistics with confidence intervals and i'm doing an experimental version of the 244 uh, which is the course that comes after, which does more inferential statistics and hypothesis testing. Essentially, it's experimental in that uh, we don't teach formulas. We teach uh, simulation methods. Interesting. So you don't ever have to, like, do computations or anything. You just use your computer. You build, like, a model that generates data in this program, and it'll generate statistics for you many times, and you can use that to build conclusions and things like that. So, yeah, it's really fun to teach. Is, is it like... um. Like, what, what sort of statistics are you dealing with that can be generated by a computer like that? So, uh, the idea is mostly with, like, null and alternative hypothesis tests. Mm -hmm. Hypothesis testing, like, nulls and alternatives. Um, yeah, I'm a little bit... I know a little bit of it. I took, like, an AP stats course, but... Right. So, yeah, it's instead of, like, saying, you know, the null hypothesis is 50% and the alternative is greater than 50%, you create a spinner device that you, like, spin... It'll spin and land on, like, one of the two halves. Because under the null hypothesis, it is a 50% chance. And then, you know, you generate data based on this random device you created. So if, you know, it's like a political poll or something, you're, you know, you collected data that shows that, you know, like, 55 out of 100 people support a proposition for this upcoming election. And you want to know, like... Does that mean, or can we state it's going to win? Oh, uh, okay. Well, you generate data under a null hypothesis. You say, well, let's pretend it's 50-50, like that there's no advantage to the proposition. And then you see how likely is it to get 55 out of 100 just by random chance. So, so you actually like do a bunch of tests and see how many of those gave you 55. Exactly. 55 right, or more. Okay. Which is basically what you do in AP stats. Um, yeah, but you, you just do that theoretically. Right, yeah, you do it, well, no, you do it non-theoretically through simulation. I mean, I suppose it's like a theoretical simulation, but there's no, like, theoretical formulas or anything to do. You're doing it based on an actual simulation of what would happen if no outcome of the election had an advantage. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a lot of fun. I teach another course that's for engineers, too which is a little higher level, uses calculus and stuff. This term's been a lot of teaching, a lot of exam writing, a lot of grading, a lot of dealing with very silly requests. So, <laughs> um, Maybe that could be a section on the podcast. Oh Kit's silly requests from <laughs> students. I assume students. Yeah. Although. <laughs> I don't know how much detail I could go into some of these <laughs> stuff or feel safe That's about. 
yeah, maybe that's maybe, maybe like <laughs> ten years from now when it's like I could be more general about my students and it's a little less right. specific. But <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure how comfortable I feel with talking about specific students on uh, yeah. a public basis. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that and Lauren's been gone past couple days, which is weird. Oh, really? Yeah, they she had to go on a business trip to D.C. kind of out of the mm. like last minute blew out out of nowhere sort of thing, and she's flying back tonight. So been a little distracted been uh keeping an eye on her flight status uh, so i'll be picking mm-hmm. her up around eight o'clock or something like that so sorry my mom just like walked in the room despite the sign on the door telling her not to because um, <laughs> i just moved back uh all my stuff back into my house in san diego with my family i was up in a uh, cal state northridge where i go to school but not for the summer so I just moved back here. I've got like a ton of stuff in my room that is just kind of being stored here over the summer. So that's taking up like most of the space in my room. (laughs) I feel that. That's what's going on in my life. It's not super exciting. Just getting stuff moved back in. Yeah. Hanging out here. Just to confirm your, um, uh, your school is in like the LA area, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's Northridge, which is like, it's part of the city of LA. It's like the northernmost part of it. Gotcha. Uh, it's just LA is a really big city, so yeah, I'm not familiar with any parts of LA other than like Anaheim. Yeah, to be honest, I'm not super familiar with them either, despite yeah. <laughs> <laughs> being there. But I'm back here in San Diego now for the summer. Sweet. Um, yeah, so might have to deal with interruptions from my family every once in a while. Apparently, yeah, that's uh, all right. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm working on a video project, uh, organizing some Rubik's cube comps, doing a lot of cubing just in my free time, mm-hmm. and making podcasts, as you might be able to guess from what you're listening to right now. Ha! Yeah. <laughs> what do we What do we got going on? I guess normally this is the part where we would follow up on previous podcasts and uh, you know response from listeners and whatnot. Right. So but we don't um, have any of that. <laughs> blank from Blank Town, uh, <laughs> Blank State uh, would like to say nothing. How do you, this make you feel? I uh, I think it's sort of a commentary on art, really, and how art imitates life. In that, all of art and life are nothing. That's real deep, real deep. Thank you, not, uh, Blank from Blank Town, Blank State. <laughs> <laughs> And yes, we hope to get uh, more listener comments after uh, this show as well, and we can follow up on those as well. You know, we've done a yeah, we've been talking a lot, and we've not talked a, very much about cubing at all. So we should probably change that. Yeah, I mean, ostensibly, this is a cubing podcast <laughs> for the most part. Yeah, I mean, we can have a you know kit and andrew talk about their daily lives podcast, but um, I don't think that'd be as interesting. So let's perhaps not. <laughs> yeah, let's go ahead and change that. Uh, So our first topic here is using a different method for one-handed versus two-handed three-by-three solving. This is is something that's sort of come up recently because, uh, oh boy, this is the part where we could get in trouble for a name pronunciation. Uh, Kian Mansour, uh, potentially Kian Mansour, although I think I talked to him or something at some point and learned that it was pronounced Kian. I might have also just made that up. So <laughs> sorry, Kian slash Kian. I thought it was Kian on... until this podcast. So <laughs> I mean, probably better off than me. At least you have an idea that it might be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, uh, in any case, Kian, probably Kian, I think. Kian Mansour or Mansour. Oh, this is getting confusing. Set a one-handed average world record recently using the Rue method. And that's newsworthy because that hasn't been done for any 3x3 method or for any 3x3 world record 
ever set right. with a method other than CFOP, except for like you know before before the WCA and stuff when people were just doing whatever corners first, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's it's interesting because um, I mean Alex Lau got close to setting world records like twenty thirteen oh, or so, but just uh, couldn't get to enough comps. I think like I I to be honest, I feel like if Alex Lau in his heyday. Uh, went to comps like as frequently as Felix did. I think it would have been very likely that he would have held a world record at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, his parents, though, just uh, didn't really let that happen, unfortunately. So right, yeah. Now he's competing a little bit more, and he's still really good. Yeah, he's still but... really good, but yeah, probably not uh, pushing for world records like he was uh, four or so years ago. Yeah, definitely not. But Kian, on the other hand, right. is getting really good, and he, I think he's. Uh, just based on his unofficial results that he's reported, he's definitely like way ahead of everyone in terms of one-handed solving. Absolutely, yeah. So, so what do you think of the idea? I've I've seen a few people posting things about switching to Rue for one-handed, even though they use like CFOP for two-handed. What What do you think of that? Do you think it's viable? Is I'm... it possible to do that? I think it's possible. Uh, I have to question whether it's worth the time to do it. I mean, so if you're world class in three by three, it's it, to me it seems almost kind of like the color neutral thing. Like you know, sure, I think being color neutral is better than not being color neutral. But if you're already so set in what you know, it seems like a lot of work to get an advantage that may not be there. Like it, the hard thing about Rue is that we don't have a lot of people to to really push the limits of the method. It's very possible that Rue could be better. It's very possible that um, Rue is better for some and not for others um Mm -hmm. i mean at this point i'm not convinced that rue is necessarily better for one-handed than cfop is it very well could be but i'm not convinced yet yeah i would push back a little bit on the thing about color neutrality not always being worth it because we do we have seen people like uh, patrick ponce he got a lot faster after he became color neutral that's totally true so i I think that that probably is something that actually is worth doing just a matter of whether or not it's like the person's going to practice enough to do it. I feel like that is a significant enough advantage. Yes, and that... there are, there are people that have definitely, you know, pushed for color neutral and have become significantly better as a result of it, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of people that have tried being color neutral and maybe either just didn't put enough time into it or put enough time into it and just didn't get the results they were looking mm-hmm. for. And I wonder with, you know, putting a lot of time into one-handed rue if it's just like a turns into like a oh i can do another method kind of fast but this cfop is still my main method i don't know yeah well do you think that like uh, if we stick with the color neutral analog do you think it's possible at this point for somebody to be as consistently fast as felix and max because i think they're basically the only two who are kind of at that level right now right if if they weren't using color neutral cfop like if they were just using single cross color cfop do you think it's possible to be that consistently fast because i don't i don't think it is yeah i would agree i don't think it's as possible um it's i mean that's i know i remember one case where um kevin at a local comp around here kevin hayes he lost a comp to uh this little kid max shaw that just you know got he i think he was opposite color neutral Mm -hmm. you know just one extra face and Kevin, who is white cross only, just the, the white crosses were apparently awful on all of those mm. scrambles. And just having one extra cross color, right, like made a huge difference. Where you know Kevin was should have been a heavy favorite to win that final, but uh, the scrambles were not in his favor. Um, I definitely think there's a lot to consistency, even just by being you know dual color neutral. Yeah, so so I think that's a that's a case where like making that switch is 
I I would argue definitely worth the effort. Yes. Whereas the Rue one-handed thing, that definitely remains to be seen. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think the color neutrality, there's a there's definitely evidence of that being helpful. And it's also a much more clear case where you get a very clear advantage out of it. Right. Yeah, if you can do it successfully. Yeah, color neutral is like a skill on top of an existing method. Rue right. is a completely different method, which makes it harder to compare you know, how much better or worse it is. Like, color neutral is a clear theoretical advantage where there's no clear theoretical advantage to Rue. I'm sure some people would argue that there is, though, like lower move count. True. Well, that being, that would probably be the big one. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it's just a matter of whether the, like, finger tricks and the, yeah, basically just a matter of whether the finger tricks are significantly impacted by the change in the moveset you're using right and it doesn't seem like with enough practice it seems like your tps with m slices can be good with a solid table abuse so yeah it's an interesting case where rue would not really be a viable method for oh at all if that that wasn't the the way the regulations worked right totally looking back on this i wonder how when, when table abuse i can't remember exactly when it was made explicit that the table was okay for one-handed because i think for a mm-hmm. long time it was rather ambiguous and then it was made explicit that yes this is okay i wonder if when that decision was made if you could see into the future and see somebody doing rue one-handed by you know literally pushing the cube against the table to gain the ability to do m slices like if they would think no table i mean the hardware being used at the time probably wasn't nearly as conducive to doing that kind of finger trick totally like like you can't do an m slice one-handed finger trick on a bad cube you kind of need the modern or at least near modern hardware for that yeah and i mean i even remember when i started in 08 like M slices were seen as cumbersome back then, two-handed. <laughs> like yeah. cubes were could barely do those sorts of moves with like two. It was it felt like like a new thing. Like all of these different M slice algorithms for these different uh you know PLLs even just like U perms. RU was so predominant. Like and very few people even considered MU as a reasonable alternative. Yeah, and like even when I started, that was still the case. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, people were using ru for a really long time right so um i think we just totally trained of thought it away from where we were going but um... <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah well i i think that with the discussion of rue versus cfop for one-handed mm-hmm. I, like this is sort of a common debate that goes on all the time what methods better for what things totally. um like i've been arguing with people about it for a long time since i use zz Mm-hmm. Although I'm usually arguing nowadays that they shouldn't be learning ZZ because yeah. it's not as good. Which is interesting. Like you would think that ZZ seems to to me to have clear theoretical advantages over CFOP. It's some, it kind of does. <laughs> I think that it um like if you use like ZZA for instance, where you do um you know do you do your EO EO line, build up the first two layers, and then just zbll to finish yeah i feel like if somebody can pull that off then that's better than just normal cfop but if so you're you using think, cfop okay. with all sorts of like tricks and with x crosses and stuff like that then they become a lot more close gotcha and, and cfop is a lot easier to do so it's like easier to get to that point i think for cfop so it's that zbll step that really gives it the advantage otherwise it's just kind of a lateral move yeah or maybe also if you can do like uh, zzc which is where you use winter variation or mm. or not or like for full like you force an ol skip every single time basically right right that that i think also could be really good because then you can get really fast at your pll's but you kind of need the large alg sets i think for zz and no one's really come up with a good 
low algorithm variant of ZZ that is also efficient. Right, right. I don't know, that's interesting to me. I I know you're a ZZ person, so you uh, I defer to you on that. The... Yeah, I mean, I'm still super happy that I know and use ZZ because being really good at EO is super useful for FMC. Totally. And then, yeah, so I, I've always been talking to people about like what different methods are good for. And I still think that ZZ is a better method for one-handed than CFOP is, if you can get good at RUL turning. Right. But that's also debatable. Mm-hmm. And then I, I personally, I do kind of think that Rue is probably an easier method to get fast at one-handed with. Mm-hmm. But whether it's worth the switch for people who are already good at CFOP, I don't know. Right. And the big thing, too, is that um, block building is not a non-trivial thing to learn. Right. Yeah. And get being uh, able to do because I feel like to really get world cla- class with Rue, you really need to be able to see first block in inspection and maybe plan it like track pieces for second block. Yeah, I think that like Kian can like plan first block and a square of his second block or something. It's just ridiculous. Right. Yeah. And I think that you know being able to plan ahead like that is. It seems simple when you think like, oh, you know, cross an F2L, people, you know, can track a cross and a couple F2L pairs. But, you know, block building is really much freer than I think people realize. And it's not like a, you see the case and it's like, oh, the pieces are going to end up here. That's this F2L case or whatever. Like that just doesn't apply to block building. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you have to actually like really track pieces and Mm -hmm. use your intuition. Totally. I don't know. I think the jury's out on that one. And I th- and I think at the very least it sort of helps to show that Rue is a viable method. Yes. Like, like for a long time people have been saying like, oh, Rue's so good. Why haven't there been any world records with it? Well, now there is one. It's interesting because it. Uh, I think that a lot a, a while ago you would laugh at the fact at Rue being better for one handed than two handed. Yeah, exactly. I I know I like made a video a long time ago where I talked to my friend uh, Neil Morales who. Mm-hmm used to use Rue, then he switched to ZZ, then he stopped cubing. Um, <laughs> but I, like, talked to him about Rue versus ZZ and, like, the pros and cons of each, and he was like, yeah, I'm switching to ZZ because it's better for one-handed. Interesting. Yeah. Which I don't think, I don't think is really true anymore. Hey, everyone. Just breaking into the podcast here to let you know that this episode actually has a sponsor, and that is the designer of the very logo of this podcast, Sarah Cook. She makes logos for Rubik's Cube competitions and also sells cubing-themed t-shirts in competitions and online. You can check out her work on Instagram at Pastel Cubes, and the link to her shop and her other design page is in the bio of that Instagram page. So once again, that's at Pastel Cubes. Personally, I like really, really enjoy all of Sarah's work. She makes some very iconic cubing designs, and you've probably seen some of her work around the internet somewhere if you're into a lot of cubing stuff. And if you need some kind of competition logo or custom design done, you can contact her and work something out for that. Kit and I knew of all her design work with other cubing stuff, so she was the first person we thought of when we needed a logo for this podcast, and I can say she did not disappoint. So once again, that's on Instagram at Pastel Cubes. Feel free to contact Sarah Cook if you need anything designed for cubing or I'd imagine for other things. She could probably work something out. Thank you so much, Sarah, for helping us out with this podcast. And anyway, let's get back to it. Uh, this talk about methods does sort of lead into another topic we have on our list here, which is my LL skip every day topic. Okay. Because I basically realized recently how many more last layer skips I get using ZZ than I would if I used CFOP. Like, do you, how many like last layer skips do you think you've gotten in the past? Like, if you had to guess or uh, estimate. Ever? Yeah. 
Uh, probably, I don't know, like 30-ish. <laughs> if that, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and you've been cubing for a long time. Right, yeah. I mean, I've, I'm coming um, up on 10 years. I've had four in the past three days. <laughs> it's just... That's sickening. Yeah, I, <laughs> and I don't, again, I don't really think that's worth learning ZZ for, but it is just an interesting thing to note, because I, I realized that because when I got a PB recently, I posted in, like, the ZZ Method Speed Solvers Facebook group, mm -hmm. and I was like, hey, I got this PB on a last layer skip. It was, like, the first time I've ever actually had a good solve that had a last layer skip. <laughs> and then after that, I just started, like, commenting on the post every time I got a last layer skip after that, because I got one, like, a few days later after that, and I was like, oh, hey, that's pretty cool. I got another... And then since then, I've just been posting on that post every time I have. <laughs> and I've realized I've just been going back to that post, like, really often now. And it's, <laughs> it's like, way more than I even thought I did. That's silly. I don't know if it's because... Well, I mean, some of them are s partially forced. Like, of those four in the past three days, one of them I forced an OLL skip. Mm -hmm. But the other three were just complete luck. So Nice. Yeah, it's like I just get la last layer skips all the time now with ZZ, and I've just been noticing it how often it really is that is rather silly i mean <laughs> i know like the probability goes up clearly with zz just because there's fewer pieces yeah. or fewer fewer way fewer orbits of the pieces to worry about mm -hmm. um it's just having the oriented edges for your last layer so you get across every time right significantly increases the chances totally but uh every every day or near every day <laughs> seems uh it's not nearly every day. That was just a pretty lucky streak, but sure, it still is like definitely like once a week or so if I'm practicing a good amount. Okay, so here's a question for you. I mean, this is probably actually a, a this is probably a question I should be able to answer myself because I teach statistics, but <laughs> I, I want to hear what your intuitive answer to this question might be. Let's say right. to get on the idea of LL skip every day. Let's say that okay. um, every day you were forced to do a session of solves <laughs> until I got a until last layer you skip. got a last layer skip. <laughs> How many oh, solves no. a day do you think you'd be doing? Am I allowed to use like my OLL skip tricks? Sure. Probably like six hundred. Okay. Maybe less. I'm not sure. Actually, no, probably less because I I force a good amount of OLL skips. Okay. Yeah, maybe like five hundred solves so you're, so it, it you're could saying be a good, you're saying a one out of every method. you're saying one out of every 500 <laughs> solves you're getting an ll skip yeah i i know it's uh like if it's if you're just using zz and not forcing anything i know it's like one in i want to say 2000 ish mm -hmm. but i don't remember for sure 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 but i'm making it happen pretty often with with all sorts of corner orientation control yep totally as many of you may know, I'm pretty heavily involved in Cubing USA affairs. And one thing that's been kind of new and exciting this year has been the whole regional championship system. It, just because it's been a great way to get people a chance to qualify in events, also to give people like a big comp feel if traveling to wherever nationals is that year is not feasible. But I have to say, if we look at the attendance for a lot of these competitions, it's been not too great. Yeah, I, I, I kind of wonder like, is it sort of the case where you think they're not big enough to attract the big crowds, but like they're big enough that you have to plan for a lot of people? So it's sort of a disproportionate, like you're expecting to have a lot of people because it's a big event, but it's not big enough. I don't know. Is that sort of what's yeah, going on? I don't know on? what's going on, to be quite honest. I wish I had a better uh, idea of why regionals are not getting the attendance we thought they would. And I think one reason that I've been 
kind of chalking it up to is the time of year with the exception Hmm. of west which is pretty much in everyone's summer vacation and northwest most of these regional championships are not easy to travel to during like a school year or anything like that and Mm -hmm. uh, i wonder if that makes a big dent in participation because people can't or people just choose not to go because they're like well i don't really want to you know travel on a friday in in march or whatever to get to a competition was the uh the northwest champs how was the attendance on that one because i know that for the western champs i think registration like just closed or something and it's not that one's not doing super well it's Um, in like low hundreds or something uh i'm not sure let me look it up but how how was northwest Uh, this year it's pretty weak so far but um you know northwest isn't till august so there's still a lot of time to register for that one west has like 143 which is weird because that's that's like less than I think you would normally expect a comp in that area. Yeah, to that get sounds like somehow. a local comp in most areas of California. I don't, I don't really know about Northern California comps, but in SoCal, you can easily hit 150 mm-hmm. at basically any right, competition. Totally. And yeah, I think the Bay Area is kind of up and down. Kind of depends on what competitions have happened recently. And I think they've been having competitions so hyper frequently up there that I think that might be cutting down the competitor counts in general. Uh. Um, but it is weird that a regional event like that wouldn't um, get quite the pull you would expect. Yeah, it's uh, it's yeah. weird. <laughs> and the one that's most concerning is the Northeast Championships. I don't want to get too much in the numbers, but I do know we're taking a pretty big hit from that competition. Mm. Um, that's kind of the one big thing to, that's concerning to me in terms of running Cubing USA is that on the whole, like regional championships lost us money this year. Which okay. uh, it definitely is not sustainable, and it makes you know makes us wonder you know what the future of regionals are if we can't fill them up or support them. I I can just personally I know that the one in Berkeley, the Western Championship, it was it's like far enough away from me that I considered not going to it. I only kind of ended up going to it because, or I'm going to go to it because I managed to work out like a carpooling thing with some people and like staying with them. So yeah, I I think I could totally see how it it could be the case that. They're just not like enough of a draw to justify people going from a little bit further away than like when there when there are other local comps that often have similar like if you have good event coverage in local competitions like you don't really need to travel for something like this right but yeah i think that right now that competitions are getting so frequent that event coverage is pretty good for the most part i wonder what the um need for if we have a need for regional events right now um, or maybe we have a need for them, but maybe we need to, you know, merge a lot of the regions together, make them larger, more encompassing. Yeah. Because I wonder if, hmm. you know, well, if people are just not considering traveling to certain regionals, like, or going out, you know, people maybe before would consider going outside the region, but, you know, if they have their own regionals, why bother? I, I wonder, like, it's just, it is sort of a... I, like, I don't know if that would actually fix the problem, because I feel like part of the the problem might be just, like, not quite getting the idea of what they are mm-hmm. across. Because if, um, I know that, like, a lot of the appeal of nationals, for instance, is it's not just a competition. Like, it's a whole sort of convention kind of thing. Or is that it has that yeah. sort of feel where you meet up with lots of different people from lots of different areas. And I feel like the regional championships might not necessarily have that same sort of feeling to them, even though they're sort of designed to emulate that on a smaller scale. 
So I wonder if it's maybe just a sort of a communication problem where people like they look at it and it sure it says championship, but maybe it just sort of feels like it could be any competition where you just add that in the title when you submit your name to the WCA or whatever. And maybe the new the WCA's like stricter naming rules are going to help to <laughs> clarify what actually is a championship or something. It could just be a problem of yeah, communication. Yeah, I don't know. Um, it, I'm not sure how to better communicate what the purpose of the events are than what we're doing right now through, you know, our Facebook pages, through the, I mean, the namings of the competitions are pretty clear. You know, we pair our nationals website on Cubing USA with all the regional championships. Mm-hmm. So, I mean... I'm not sure what else we could do to make it clear to people that these are meant to be those kinds of events and that if you have the choice to go to like a typical local comp or go to this, that you should probably go check out your regional. But I think that really it just boils down to the fact that um, right now, uh, maybe regionals as like the large scale kind of regional that we were thinking of is not something the community needs. It's it's an interesting one. I, I'd be curious to know like our listeners' yeah. feedback, I'm, especially if they've considered going to or not going to a regional. It'd be interesting to hear. Yeah. Um, what people's thought processes? How are we gonna get feedback? By oh, the great way? question. Maybe we should get a name for our podcast too. That's all. Yeah, that's probably a prerequisite. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I'll like edit something into the start of the podcast or somewhere where once we've come up with all that stuff i'll tell people how they can yeah that's good us. Call. <laughs> I, I know that um out here in southern california we didn't build too much hype for it at like the local right. competitions so that could be part of it like we didn't sell it mm-hmm. enough i don't think yeah that's um, actually a good point to because i i know around here after every competition i give a list of every single upcoming competition in the area but I, I feel like even that could be conducive to not having people think of it as much of like a championship it's like oh it's just another ch- competition in a list True. of competitions like maybe something could be done there where it's like this is like a like where it's competition organizers when they're announcing other things more explicitly like t- talk about what it is and what sort of things mm-hmm. are going on there yeah the other thing too granted uh i don't know about there were uh, like three kind of unofficial regionals last year so and they were this was before cubing usa kind of uh established control over that um but there was like heartland southern and northwest and heartland and southern were announced they were announced after northwest championships and happened before northwest championships like they they had a pretty <laughs> narrow registration window, um. So they were they were not very huge attendance, but Northwest was pretty solid. Like it was in the hundred seventies or so, which for the Northwest region is actually pretty high. I mean, we uh, our our large local comps like barely break a hundred. So getting a hundred seventy for a regional, I thought was like actually pretty awesome turnout. And but the thing is, I wonder if by the fact that there weren't other regionals, like there were tons of people who flew in, you know, from California, from the eastern half of the country, you know, for this event, just because it was a summer competition with almost every event. I wonder, you know, if maybe it's just that we don't need to have every regional every year. Right. Maybe you kind of like go every two years on regionals and they kind of trade years or maybe you merge regions together. It, it could also be that two-day competitions in the U.S. at least, or I, I don't know if I can speak for everywhere, but at least here they don't seem to be as like popular as one-day True. competitions. Like I, We had a couple of years ago, I think, we had what we called the SoCal Super Comp, which was a competition yep. with every event, uh, and that was a two-day thing. 
And I remember the turnout for that was much lower than the other competitions around it. And it seems like the opposite of what would happen. Cause it seems like every event, everyone would want to go. But for some reason, at least here, that didn't seem to be the case. Yeah. And yeah, so I, I mean, the majority of competitors just want to do the basic Americomp event list, two, three, four, right. blind, <laughs> or not even blind, two, three, four, one hand Pyroscube, you know, like, yeah, that's yeah. what most people want anyways. And most parents don't want to have to take their kids for, you know, more than a day, if that even like half of they want to be there half right. a day and then peace out. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's definitely, I think a cultural difference, like I, in Europe, you know, they have two day competitions all the time, but they also have, yeah, it's like, right. And they the also have more reliable modes of like public transit that, um, you can mm -hmm. take to get long distances for cities. And I think that, you know, if you're a that's high schooler, true. um, and you want to go to a competition, you know, you know, that's, and you know, parents don't have to go there. I feel it's. Some do, um, but I think that there there's just a ease of transportation for your younger people in Europe, and it's also I think there's a more attitude of leisure there than there is in the U.S. Um, where I think they value a lot of countries, especially like Italy or France, like really value leisure time, and mm, I think okay. that. Um, in, in the U.S., like, if you look at, like, people, like, starting jobs, I was talking with James Molloy about this. Like, for example, Lauren, her first job here, 10 days of work a year, or, or 10 days of vacation a year. 10 yeah, days 10 of work day, a no, year, yeah. that sounds... No, no, that's, that's not in the U.S. 10 days, 10 days of vacation <laughs> a year. Um, in the U.K., your typical first job, you get almost 20 days a, a year. Okay, yeah, I mean, I don't know too much about mm -hmm. that, but... So I think there's a bit of a, a cultural difference um, that would make sense in, between the U.S. and like Europe in terms of why two-day competitions are much more successful there compared to one day being more successful in the U.S. Yeah, and I think the travel is also a big part mm -hmm. of it, like you said. Like I know that for myself, because the regions sort of are tend to be more spread out. I feel, especially in the like the less populated areas of the U.S. So mm -hmm. traveling like three hours to get to a competition isn't uncommon. Whereas in like Europe, you, that could be like traveling across the entire country right. almost exactly. or something. So I think there are a lot of reasons that account for it. Yeah, and I wonder too if maybe um, one. So have you seen the uh, comp we're having in Oregon State? Is it, is this the one where you like choose the events you want to do, or did that already happen? No, yeah. So that's happening tomorrow as of reco this recording. I wonder if having more competitions like that is more the solution to getting it. You know, how do people qualify in events? How's the turnout for that one? We got 65. Uh, we, we originally set a limit of 100 with three events per person, uh, but registration mm -hmm. was pretty slow, and we didn't want to end up with, like, a, a half-full competition with, like, not enough people doing... Like, we, we would finish so early, like, well, we can't have people at events, so... We decided to cut the competitor limit to 75 in the middle of it, but increase mm -hmm. the event count to four. Nice. Okay. Basically, because three times a hundred is seventy-five times four. Yeah. <laughs> Simple math there. Yep. Exactly. Same number of event registrations. Just and then everyone adds people. like really long events for their fourth event. <laughs> yeah. Nah. I, I think it was fine for the most part. Planning that was kind of terrible though. Just scheduling how, like how and when everyone's gonna get all their stuff done. Um, especially because we have like the big blind events in a separate room going on at the yeah. same time. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, But we found ways to reorder some of the events in the schedule so so that, um, like, everybody in four or five blind, for example, like, Mm -hmm. isn't doing two by two, five by five, or skewed. Okay. So we just put those three events back to back to back. (laughs) Nice. And, like, big blind, you go now. (laughs) Cool. So, yeah, I mean, it was was kind of interesting because when you do limit people's events, uh, people tend to pick similar groups of events. That's yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Cause yeah, you don't have many people who specialize in like two by two and five blind. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So you actually get a lot of pairs of events with nobody signing up for both of them, mm-hmm. which does give you a little bit of leeway in how you can uh, schedule things, as long as you kind of make it clear like the order of the schedule can very much fluctuate depending on the registration. Yeah, but th- but then you could have the case where some person does end up signing up for something like that yeah how would how would you account for that would that just ruin your schedule oh you just i mean we tried to account for it but then like for example somebody signed up for i think pyraminx and five blind um so we're like okay well nobody signed up for scube and five blind so we'll just switch those two in the schedule Mm, okay so uh, we we just communicate with people in, in advance like you know this schedule is very fluid we do reserve the right to like reorder yeah. things yeah, to yeah. make the scheduling easier that's we did that for a few events to essentially make blocks of time for people uh to do the big blind events without dedicating time to that cool yeah so i'm i'm excited for that but i also wonder if you know the if those kinds of comps happen more frequently if that alleviates kind of the need to qualify for a lot of people i mean i would still be a little bit sad to see the idea of a regional comp go even if like the things it takes care of were addressed in other ways just because i like the idea of having a bigger competition that a lot of people go to but i guess if the people aren't going to it then that kind of defeats the purpose (laughs) right i mean because we get these big venues for these competitions and they don't fill I mean, Heartland, yeah. Heartland was just weird. I mean, the venue was nearly the size of, like, Nats 2015, and there mm-hmm. were barely 100 competitors there. Oh, wow. It just was bizarre, almost. Huh. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's It was interesting. I, I, rarely do I feel like a competition is like a ghost town, but yeah. kind of felt like that. That would be really strange. I, I feel like the one at Berkeley, or the Western Champs, I should start calling it what it is, because that's yeah. its name. That's what it's for. Um, <laughs> I feel like Western Champs is going to be kind of similar. I don't know how big the room they reserved is, but I just know that the registration was a lot lower than expected. So totally, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, and that one's surprising a bit too because I figured with it being in June that it would have a little more luck with getting people to register. Yeah, and it's also in like it's at California, which is if you take if people from both sides of California come you can get a large attendance for that but totally I feel like people from SoCal just aren't really going to it and I don't know I feel like this has actually been happening more widespread but ever since they like relaxed the um proximity rules for competitions Mm -hmm. there's been so many more competitions and as a result they haven't been as full as they used to be but it definitely overall I haven't looked at the numbers for this it definitely still seems like we're growing like there's more people still joining the WCA. Yeah, and I've I've seen some posts about that growth recently, and it seems like it's still on track to like not only grow but grow fast, like grow more than the year before this year. Yeah, exactly. I still wonder though if having competitions that fill is better for growth. Hmm. Because if competitions don't fill, that gives you know to some extent a subpar experience. I mean. 
you can it's easier on the organizers because the schedule's so easy with fewer competitors there right. but um for the competitors themselves like there's fewer people to meet it doesn't feel like this huge kind of big event and to some people if you're like maybe introverted maybe that's a good thing but i think for the most part you know the more people that are there the more likely you're going to find somebody that you like click with and get along with and can feel like there's a connection there i I think it would also depend on the region too because i know that in southern california we've been able to fill up or very come very close to filling up i think we were like a couple people off on one of the last comps i organized but like come very close to filling up the comps so they still feel really full and like lots of competitors there and i hear a lot of competitors new competitors showing up and having like the same experience they pretty much would if the if the rules were changed. So I think that it d- does depend on the region. Totally. And, and I almost wonder if there could be like something added where the number of competitors somehow factors into like how many competitions can be held in different places. Yeah, that would be complicated, but interesting. Yeah. But it, it that would make it so that like if there really is more demand for competitions than than can be currently met by the rules, mm-hmm. then it's like then it would then you can add it without having without running into the problem where you just oversaturate the number of competitions. Right. And I want I feel like we might be oversaturating pretty hard here in Oregon where I'm at. Mm. Um, last weekend we had a comp in Gaston, which is kind of this really remote town. It's not it's like this in this weird fringy area where it's like you're not quite a Portland suburb, but mm-hmm. you're just still de- definitely not a suburb. Mm. <laughs> yeah it's kind of like this we're not really sure what to call you kind of city so i mean it was definitely like i had to drive like 50 minutes to get there from where i live in portland and it only had 37 competitors which is like the smallest competition we have had here that's had three by three in a long yeah that time. sounds like a that sounds like a quiet competition <laughs> Yeah, it was really bizarre. I mean, we had a limit of 130 for it because the hmm. space we had was huge. Um, it was like the gymnasium of a high school. Oh, yeah, and, those are those are good. <laughs> yeah, uh, but nobody showed. It was We just had giant open spaces everywhere. That can sort of be, kind of depends on like who you are, whether that's a good experience. Because if that's your first comp, then it's a bad experience, probably. Yeah, but I, if... mean, I don't know. There were a lot of new newcomers that went that said they had a great time there, too. So... Hmm. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm overstating the importance of filling up competitions, but yeah. it's definitely a different feeling. Definitely, right? I don't know. Food for thought. Do you want to talk about the regulation of the day? Are the we regulation of the day. <laughs> the regulation of the day. Nice. We need a jingle for the regulation of the day. We'll run uh, out eventually. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so the regulation of the day today was something I found interesting at least in that i think it's a regulation that doesn't get followed that often uh before you talk about that yeah should we talk about who we are in case anyone doesn't know sure to give some context here yeah absolutely so i mean maybe this should have been at the start of the podcast but who cares um (laughs) (laughs) i'm my name's andrew uh i have a youtube channel colorful pockets that's where most people know me from i also organize a bunch of competitions as you can tell and I compete. My main event's FMC, or also known as Fewest Moves, its actual name. Uh, and yeah, th- that's me. And Kit? Cool. That's me. I'm Kit. Do you uh, want to tell us about yourself? <laughs> <laughs> uh, if I have to, I guess. Uh, so Kit Clement is my name, uh, and my game is being a WCA delegate. Um, 
for the most part. Uh, so I delegate <laughs> a lot of competitions. Um, I'm also in charge of a lot of Cubing USA related affairs. Um, so nationals, regionals, supported competitions, things of that nature. I've got my hands in a few too many Cubing jars. Yeah, so I've got a lot of experience on kind of the organizational and delegating side, but I do like to do a lot of the heavy thinking events, blinds, FMCs, to find those the most fun. I feel like I do fairly well in FMC, but uh, still need to get a good mean in competition. <laughs> <sighs> so, yeah, that's a bit about me. Since you're a delegate, I thought that we could have the segment of the regulation of the day where you talk about an interesting regulation that pe- people might not be as familiar with as the common ones. Yeah, totally. Um, so here is one regulation that I think often isn't even followed at competitions at all. Um, it's in the article for multiple blindfolded solving, H1A. So before an attempt, the competitor must submit to the organization team the number of puzzles they wish to attempt. Now, this doesn't mean that they're submitting the puzzles. They are submitting a number. And generally, whenever you do multiple blindfolded, you don't just, like, give them a number to them. You, um... You just give your cubes to them, huh? Yeah, you just give your cubes. And let me explain why... You know, this is something I've started to do at my own competitions that have multiple blindfolded uh, or multi-blind or whatever you want to call it. So, Andrew, what's what's how many cubes can you do in, for multi? I mean, what are you? I've, if, well, I've been attempting nine. Haven't yeah. gotten better than six out of nine yet. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you're attempting uh, actually a number that's pretty similar to me. There's a lot of strategy that goes into picking the number of cubes that you're doing. Right. Um, yeah. And a lot of the cases, what happens is, you know, people just bring up cubes, leave them there, and then, you know, walk away. Um, And a lot of people don't care about that sort of privacy or whatever. There is the regulation, a sub-regulation of H1A that a competitor can request to keep their submission private until all numbers have been submitted. Right. Yeah, I was looking at that. Yep. So, and generally a lot of competitors don't care. I think for a lot of competitors, they're just going to attempt the number of cubes that they were going to attempt no matter what. But like for me, there was a a competition last year, SkillCon, where, you know, I was doing, I think, four blind and five blind and stuff there. And I didn't want to overexert myself on multi, but I also (laughs) wanted a chance to podium. Right. So I kind of was wanting to pick a number that get, that optimized my chances of success, not my chances to get a PB. And in that case, the number that I picked was actually super strategic and depended a lot on other numbers people were doing. And did was that a time when you did you know the numbers that other people were? Yeah, attempting? people were very forward about their numbers. So you were able to make a well-educated decision. Yes, absolutely. And. I don't know, I, like, but based on the regulations, I mean, granted, the people who were doing multi there, you know, basically, it wasn't like I looked at how many cubes they brought up and then made my decision. Like, they mm-hmm. were very clear in communicating how many cubes they were doing. Like, they were talking about it with other people. They so, were, like, people you, were they, like, people you knew, mostly? Yes, yeah, for the most part, like, uh, Riley, um, Riley oh, yeah. Wu, yeah. Kevin Matthews, uh, Jeff Park was there, too. Mm-hmm. And... So, like, a bunch of us were talking about how many cubes we were going to attempt. Um, and I said I wasn't sure yet, but they were all talking about their numbers. And they were all, like, insanely high. M- yeah. Much higher than what I can do. So I decided to pick a number that was odd. I can't remember why, but I think an odd number worked out better for trying to basically beat them if any of them kind of, you know, the bed on their attempt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so... I ended up doing seven because I wanted to basically pick a number that I felt like I could do 
safety memo on and basically try to go for a perfect seven out of seven. And I did. I got a seven out of seven and it was just enough to get me to second place. Oh, nice. Because so it worked out. <laughs> two, of, two of them did not have very good attempts. I actually got really close to first. So like, if, I think if I got a nine out of nine, I think it would have been first. But hmm. but anyway, so the, this brings me to my point, though, is that if you just have people bring up cubes to like a drop off area without submitting numbers first, mm-hmm. um, people can kind of just change whatever number they want based on like how many other cubes are brought up by other people. Right. Okay. Um, which, you know, the problem I see here is like, sure, yeah, competitors didn't request to keep it private. But if you just, as an organizer, lay out scorecards and say, all right, bring up your cubes, you're opening up this door for people to potentially adjust their attempts based on mm-hmm. other people's num- numbers of cubes. Yeah, up. yeah. And I don't know, now when I do multi, I always try to like give people slips of paper in advance where they write the number or the like i tell them here's your scorecard write it on the back and give it to me this is the number you're doing you can't change it now i think i'm going to start doing that too i am co-organizing a competition coming up that's going to have multi-blind mm-hmm. uh potentially at least right not announced or anything yet but i'll, I'll i'm sort of like mentoring some other newer organizers Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll, I'll be sure to mention that to them because I hadn't really thought of like I knew about the regulation right but I hadn't thought about how the method of just submitting your cubes on the on the uh, paper sort of like inherently makes that regulation hard to follow yeah no, but I, that's totally done everywhere yeah I've seen at least I don't think anybody really does like a separate number submission and I think for the most part it doesn't change much but I think it's also nice to have it so that like because otherwise, if people want their numbers to remain private, like, you don't really have a good way to do it. Yeah. I, I think we're also in, like, an era of speed cubing in general where it doesn't feel as important because all of the records are still, like, very attainable. Mm-hmm. So most of what people are doing is just focusing around, like, personal like personal bests or records or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I could see in the future that as sort of the mentality shifts winning a competition could become more important and then following right. procedures like that would also become more important uh, even if it's not doesn't seem important to some people like getting a podium or winning an event could be very important to certain people yeah yeah so I mean, even today i think that's potentially an issue and so. i mean especially when there are prizes involved yeah then it's definitely an issue mm-hmm. yeah i totally agree so that's um I don't know. That's that's one other thing I wanted to mention too. I did say like writing on the back of scorecards. If that is a method you do, I would try to make sure they don't like that you. If you give them the scorecard to write it on, don't let them like walk away with it. There's there's been issues at competitions in the past where sometimes, for example, rather than having everybody or having the organizers like pre-cut and make scorecards for everybody. They just mm-hmm. print out a ton of blanks, and if you're doing an event, like, as you come mm. up, you just write your name and stuff onto a scorecard, and that's yeah. how you submit it. But giving people the access to blank scorecards makes it really easy to slip, like, a fabricated scorecard by. Right. Yeah. So you'd maybe want to, like, call up people one at a time or something and have them write it down and then put it in a Yeah, or just like have, a a separate, have, a, have a separate slip of paper they write it on that's okay. not the scorecard yeah. so then they can take their time to think about it or whatever yeah. i think at one competition we had a multi-attempt like around lunchtime ish basically when they checked in and like picked up their name tag in if they were doing multi there was a slip of paper in their name tag that they write, wrote their number on mm, that makes sense in the schedule we said like please submit your numbers by this time okay yeah and then everything was set 
the numbers were clear. People couldn't change on the spot. Yeah, that's uh, that's my regulation of the day. Cool. Yeah, we'll see how long I can keep it up. Unfortunately, the regulations are finite. <laughs> I think there's a good amount in there that people don't know. Yeah. Next, next week, it could be uh, H1A1. <laughs> yeah. And then H1A2. Yeah. Then H1... <laughs> we, can, we can have a regulation on competitors being fully clothed. Oh, yeah. That, that would be a fun one to that, discuss. That, that, yeah, we'll discuss that one week. <laughs> how do we end these things? Yeah, I don't know. What do you, what do you, how, do we, how do we name a podcast? How do we end a podcast? How do we, how do we podcast? Well, <laughs> um, if we had, like, contact information and a name, we could talk about those, but we don't. No. Uh, I mean, we could, we could try to come up with that right now. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I don't even know what to call this podcast. It's so kind of random. Yeah, I, uh, I feel like the name has to be kind of general, whatever it is. Yeah, or insanely creative. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Oh, I've got it. Yeah? Cubecast. Ha! Nice! It's an original, original oh, one. Man. I just came up with it. <laughs> I can't believe I didn't think of that. <laughs> <laughs> For now, uh, yeah. we'll have information in the show notes. Oh, we will. Wherever, yeah, sure, I'll do that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> about nice. how you can contact us, or maybe I've edited something into the start of this show, or maybe I'm editing in something right now after I say this. Perfect. Uh, to tell you how to contact us if you want to give us responses, tell us what we, what else we should do. Mm-hmm. Uh, any questions? You know, you know yeah. the deal. Yeah, we definitely are open to hearing from our uh, listeners and want to integrate that into our show. Um, yeah you know this is a pretty open format we're uh pretty uh open to doing whatever really with this podcast it's kind of a you know a mostly cubing but loosely you know just open open talk about kind of whatever's on our mind so um if there's any uh like news or anything that you think in cubing that we should talk about or just in anything else that it seems like we might be interested in let us know maybe we haven't seen it yet totally that's that's what we're looking for here just trying to shoot the hay and uh i don't know is that a is that a phrase shoot it the is hay. now <laughs> <laughs> that's right we're kicking back and shooting hay maybe that should be the name of the podcast <laughs> <laughs> shooting hay. Are we really calling this shoot the hay? <laughs> shoot the hay. I didn't want to say shooting the shit, so I just said shoot the hay, and I'm like, wait, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> oh man. All right, well let's uh, let's let that settle and see if we uh. <laughs> see what we think about that um <laughs> google shooting the hay yeah it didn't come up with anything i already did it <laughs> i think shoot. we might have been going for shoot the breeze <laughs> yeah i don't know <laughs> uh, okay um that happened cool well, thanks thanks for listening yeah thanks for <laughs> listening shoot everybody the hay. <laughs> Oh man, I, I, I God, I hope I come up with a better name now. <laughs> <laughs>
since I have a bad feeling this is going to become the name of our podcast. <laughs> uh, um, alrighty. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We hope to hear from you. And, and until you'll be hearing then, from us eventually. <laughs> that's right. And until then, happy cubing. Happy cubing.